0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel. And today we welcome Rohit Khanna, who joins us to talk about his new book, Misunderstanding Health, Making Sense of America's Broken Healthcare System, new from Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, Rohit, welcome. Well, thank you, Stephen.
1: It's a pleasure to uh, to be here, and uh, I'm delighted to spend some time with you and uh, and the listeners.
0: Excellent. Uh, so, before we dive in and talk about the book itself, I wonder if you might tell folks a little bit about who you are and your background, and what it is that you brought brought you to this particular book.
1: Absolutely. Um, so, I'm the president and managing director of Catalytic Health. We are a Toronto-based medical communications agency, and that's what I tell people I do uh, as my day job. I also have the good fortune of having um, academically be, been trained in uh, public health, epidemiology, and health economics, and have been fascinated by the uh, the, um, the discipline for for two decades. And you know, the, the book Stephen really uh, was born out of a couple of things. Number one, I've been writing for a number of years, writing columns and, and guest articles for for numerous. Um, uh, online and and print publications and periodicals and you know at some point i decided that i needed to compile all my thinking into one into one uh, uh spot and it really it, the main motivation was that you know healthcare touches us all it touches us either directly um or or indirectly through friends and family and it's not always you know terminal illnesses sometimes it's just acute injuries and acute things that happen but healthcare touches us all and uh, I, I wanted to write a book that provided a little bit of understanding to the intellectually curious individual um, who wanted to better understand uh, some of the levers that, that impact healthcare uh, today in America uh, without necessarily having to go into the, the, the weeds uh, of being a policy expert or a policy wonk or an epidemiologist. So, you know, that, that was the main motivation.
0: Terrific. So the the I think it's fair to say that the 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 theme of the book is is complexity, and you you undertake to show us the ways in which that complexity plays out and the ways it infects uh, affects those of us who are interact interacting with the system, uh, sort of at the at the, at the patient level uh, across eighteen chapters that cover eighteen separate topic areas. We won't have the opportunity to work our way through all 18 of those chapters, but why don't we uh, move through as many of them as we can in the next half hour or so? And I wonder if we might start with uh, your thoughts on, on the role that drug companies play and drug pricing plays. I think that may be one of the places where people's own personal experience may inform, if nothing else, their frustration and their inability to make sense of what seems to be going on. So what should we know about about drugs and drug pricing and how this plays out in the in the system?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question, Stephen. And obviously, I mean, it's a very timely question, given that, you know, President Biden articulated his vision for how the the United States might lower prescription drug pricing as part of his Build Back Better agenda. And I think that was just last week. And, you know, let's be clear, we have known for decades that drug prices were uh, and are a big part of the the health care problem. Uh, Professor Uwe Reinhardt and, and Gerard Anderson from Princeton and Johns Hopkins respectively told us as much in this landmark article uh, that I'm sure many of your your listeners and you yourself are familiar with. And that article is called It's the Price is Stupid, Why the United States is So Different from Other Countries. And And this landmark article, which was published, uh, I think it was 2003 or 2002, it's almost two decades old, it looked at America's healthcare spending in relation to other OECD nations. And, and so what we came out with, and, and by the way, that work has been replicated by other authors over the decades. And what we came out with, Stephen, is a clear Vision for um, the fact that you know drug pricing is a significant driver of healthcare cost. It's not utilization, as some people have said. It's not uh, the difference between primary care and specialty care. You know, does the U.S. have more specialists versus uh, family care, uh, uh, primary care physicians, and, and family physicians compared to other countries, and, and, and so on and so forth? That the real driver is drug pricing, and you know. Many administrations uh, have have tried to pull two or three different levers. Number one, allowing Medicare to negotiate uh, with drug companies for bulk drug discounts, and that's never worked. And and you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, and and some of its shortcomings for better or for worse. But we often forget, Stephen, that you know the the uh, the. I guess the linchpin of, of George Bush's uh, administration back in two thousand three was the signing uh, of the Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act, the MMA. And within that act, as you know, um, you, you know, it, it was it was prohibited for for Medicare to negotiate drug discounts with with manufacturers and pharmaceutical companies. So. That's been one lever that we've always tried to pull. The other lever we've tried to pull, which which I find ironic, sitting here in Canada today, is that we've tried to look at, at drug importation from Canada, and, and, and this is an idea that's been floated for years. And uh, you know, I, I continue to remain genuinely confused about it. You know, how do U.S. patients acquire cheaper drugs from Canada without literally? Emptying Canadian pharmacy shelves, and you know, pardon my language, pissing off an entire nation, um, and, and then, and then, you know, fundamentally, how does it work from a mechanics point of view? Um, so, so, you know, we can we can get into the weeds on that, but for the purposes of, of our discussion today, I'll just keep it very high level. Um, there's some there's some mechanisms that are really really confusing about drug importation, you know, uh, from Canada that need to be ironed out. Thirdly, when we talk about drug prices. Stephen, we look at levers like tying uh, drug price increases to the cost of inflation or to the consumer price index, which have been ideas, again, floated out by the Biden administration uh, that have their provenance uh, from from other administrations um, uh, in the past, particularly the Obama administration. And then last but by no means least, the other lever that impacts drug pricing in, in America has been the um, uh, acceleration of the uptake of generic and biosimilars, which will fundamentally shift costs from some of the, uh, the branded innovator, uh, drugs to, um, to the cheaper, uh, generics and biosimilars. So with that, with that said, uh, drug pricing in America, we've known about it for two decades, at least it has been a main driver. Uh, Reinhard and Anderson told us that in their landmark article, and we've tried to address it from a variety of, of, um, Perspectives and 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 levers, uh, but to be honest, even we we haven't had any success. There is not a political will um, in, in the country uh, to to overturn. The um, uh, the MMA that George Bush signed in two thousand three, which prohibited uh, Medicare from negotiating drug discounts with with drug companies, and there are uh, complexities uh, on other levels with some of the levers that I mentioned as well. So I hope that that paints a little bit of a picture for the for the listener.
0: It does. I want to hold on this for just a moment, and and because uh, as people may be familiar, heads of say pharmaceutical companies will say, well. That part of the reason that drugs are more expensive in the United States is that we, the companies, are bearing enormous expenses in the development of these exciting, innovative new products, and we need to recoup those losses so that there is a rationality to this. What What do you say to that kind of argument?
1: Yeah, and that's a that's an argument that we have heard before in the policy world and and in the public health world. And, and look, there is no question that drug companies are outlaying uh, you know hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. The Center for Drug Development at Tufts University, I believe, put the price tag at somewhere around two billion dollars per molecule that makes it from the. Um, the petri dish to the pharmacy shelf. And, and that needs to account for all the molecules that fail and that don't actually make it to market. Because Stephen, let's be honest, for every drug that makes it to market, the, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess the uh, the bean counters have estimated that there are thousands of other molecules that fail in proof of concept. They fail in phase one, phase two. They never make it. So, um, th- what, what I say to the, the 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 CEOs of pharmaceutical companies is: is absolutely, you have invested a ton of money into research and development, and absolutely, you should be able to to uh, make a fair profit. Uh, but we need to be able to better understand that. And I think the challenge has always been for the policy folks and for the you know, for the government folks. Um, who are who are charged with trying to solve this conundrum has always been the inability to look inside the black box. So show us the drug development costs and show us the marketing costs and show us your cost of development and research, and then let's work out a way where, through the mechanisms that we have, including you know patent protection with the Hatch Waxman Act and then other other uh, mechanisms that we have in place, let's figure out a way where. You as an industry can make money, and of course, where where society can also benefit. So uh, there's no question, Stephen, that I believe that the um, the industry uh, should be uh, compensated for the immense risk that they take in developing uh, molecules, um, and that they should have a fair, uh, healthy margin and profit. But we need to find that balance, and that balance starts with understanding what the what the costs
0: are. And going back to your observation earlier about political will, it might be worth pointing out that. After fire insurance and uh, finance insurance and real estate, uh, the next largest categories of, of industries that spend money on lobbying and political campaigns uh, are pharmaceutical industries and health insurance companies themselves. And surely that's got to be playing some role, it seems reasonable to assume, in this failure of political will to address the, what we're identifying as a problem.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, and, and, and we could extend that further and then we could look at, at the gun control lobby and we look at the pharmaceutical lobby and we look at the tobacco lobby. And to your point, no. Stephen, I think when you look at public policy, uh, we would be remiss if we did not recognize the role of, of some of the, um, some of the, um, the interested parties um, and, and the role that they play, the outsized role that they play in influencing legislation for sure.
0: So uh, I want to make sure we also talk a little bit at the, at the individual level uh, uh, about how people interact with the system directly. But before we do that, maybe we can talk about another sort of larger uh, uh, set of what problems and ways of thinking about the the nature of health in the United States. And so why don't we talk a little bit about uh, the social determinants of health? So maybe for folks who are not familiar with that phrase, tell us what the social determinants of health are and how that helps us think about why we have uh, not only higher expenditures in the US than other comparator countries, but uh, across almost every important dimension, worse health outcomes.
1: Yeah. And and again, a really, really uh, germane point, Stephen. So social determinants of health are are fundamentally economic and and social conditions that influence our health status. So everything from, you know, where you live, the neighborhood in which you live, your access to, to, you know, uh, uh, public transport. Um, you know your your ability to get uh, you know food at a local grocery store, uh, your exposure to uh, crime, those social determinants of health. To your point, and to the larger uh, you know policy issue, are significant drivers of uh, of health status within communities in America and for that matter around the world. And you know when you look at some of the data that we have seen on um, social determinants of health and, and why the U.S. lags its European and Canadian, Japanese, Australian peers, you know, there, there's there's a couple of things that become eminently obvious to, to somebody who looks at this data. Uh, number one, the US is an incredible outlier in terms of its uh, uh, per capita spending on, on healthcare. I think it's, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 20,000 uh, per person and spending about 18 to 20% of, of total GDP, which the second Country on that list is, I believe, Switzerland, if I'm not mistaken, and they are in the 10%, which is almost double the spending on on healthcare per capita in the US than there is um, in in some of the other OECD nations. And what you get for that, to your question, is you don't get improved outcomes by any measure. And again, we could argue that we are not looking at the right measures or that there are different outcomes that we ought to be um, uh, looking at in order to make a better determination. But Given the measures we have, life expectancy at birth, life expectancy at age 65, maternal mortality rates, hospital admissions, 30-day readmissions, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Given those measures and metrics that we are using, the U.S. does not fare better. In fact, it fares sometimes even worse than than emerging markets and third world countries. So it's a tremendous challenge. There is incredible um, wastage within the system. Um, it, there are there are um, issues that manifest themselves within the U.S healthcare system that need to be corrected be it drug pricing, be it the ability for Medicare to negotiate with drug companies, be it how we compensate physicians and nurses, be it the shortage that we have of allied healthcare practitioners, pharmacists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, etc cetera, et cetera. I mean there's a host of problems that continue to this um, th- this uh, element of of lower, outcomes that the us. seems to be achieving or 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 obtaining uh, or getting you know, relative to some of their European counterparts. and and that's a larger discussion that obviously um, has many uh, uh, that has many uh, uh, factors that are related to it.
0: This may be one of the places where we can see in which health policy interacts with other kinds of of differences in u s. social welfare policy compared to, say, those other OECD nations, and I am thinking, we are recording this interview in the summer of 2021, um, as we are, depending on how you do the math, in the midst of a fourth COVID surge. Um, And one of the things that, that, that people have been puzzling over is, right, how do we explain people who are unwilling or reluctant to be vaccinated? And we know that some of those people are concerned about the ways in which potential side effects of the inoculation will render them ill enough for a day or two that they will have to miss work and are unprepared economically to do that, right? So it's a sort of the failure to have broader sets of social support also interact as we think about sort of these larger structures that may account for these these worth worse health outcomes.
1: Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And so when I talk about this to to people all the time, particularly, as you say, in the midst of an ongoing fourth or third or fifth wave, depending on on where you live, uh, you know, the issue around vaccination is a very, very complex and nuanced one, because as we know, uh, we meaning you and I, but certainly the the extending to your broader audience, we know that the uh, unvaccinated as a group are not monolithic. there are some real nuances. There are the traditional anti-vaxxers who, after 10 months um, uh, of having access and opportunity to get vaccinated, um, have decided they're simply not going to do that. And nothing we can do is going to change their mind. And, And I say that, you know, obviously with some dismay. But there are also other groups, Stephen, to your point, which are You know, people who haven't been vaccinated because they can't get the time off work, or they don't have reliable transportation to get to a vaccination center, or, you know, something that we don't talk a lot about, but that is near and dear to my heart being in health communications is low health literacy, there's a vast, vast swath of Americans who have low health literacy and have misunderstood the importance of this vaccine in this moment. There are people who don't have access to the technology to even make a booking or an appointment. And finally, there are undocumented immigrants who fear deportation because the personal details that might, you know, lead, you know, immigration and customs enforcement to show up on their front door might be made available at a vaccination center. So, uh, you know, with that said, the the challenges of trying to explain to um, a, a group of of a massive group of individuals and people and citizens the benefits of vaccination in the midst of myths and disinformation that is, you know, uh, rampant on social media has proven to be a tremendous tremendous challenge for us, Stephen.
0: So, why don't we use that as an opportunity to turn toward maybe individual behaviors and what we can do to create. Uh, more health-positive behaviors among individuals and communities. Uh, Talk a little bit about the notion of nudge, which I imagine at this point lots of people are familiar with. But how do we think about nudges in, in creating better health behavior, and then maybe we can at some point circle back to how that might interact with ways to increase vaccination rates?
1: Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. And so, you know, anybody who's who's a fan of, of uh, you know, the great, uh, you know, kind of behavioral uh, economists, uh, the Daniel Kahneman's and, and the Amos Tversky's, uh, the, you know, Richard Thaler, Cass Sunstein, uh, Stephen Levitt, uh, all, obviously Malcolm Gladwell, Dan Ariely, anybody who's a fan of these, this group of, of behavioral thinkers is familiar with this concept, as you said, of, of nudges. And the idea of nudges is, is relatively simple uh, in the grand scheme of things. You know, it Thaler and Sunstein, who who you know had this best-selling book uh, on behavioral economics called Nudge, and 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 as I said, Daniel Kahneman, who won the, the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences, they they have made this really really um, they made this really clear. A nudge is any aspect of your choice architecture that alters your behavior in a predictable way, without forbidding any options. Or significantly changing your economic incentives. I'm going to say that again: any aspect of the choice architecture that alters your behavior in a predictable way, without forbidding any options or changing your 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 economic incentives. So, for example, when you go into a grocery store, Stephen, and you have fruit and vegetables at eye level, or a school cafeteria, they put fruit and vegetables at eye level, and they put the soda machine way back in the school cafeteria where it's really hard to get to, that's a nudge. But when you actually forbid a soda vending machine from being in the school, that's not a nudge. That's a government mandate, or that's a school board mandate. And there's a difference, right? Again, it alters your choice architecture. So what's happened with COVID and what's happened with healthcare? We have done such a remarkable job of nudging people into masking and social distancing and hand hygiene that we're now in a spot where we can't get people to leave their homes and go to the hospital and get their routine health checkups and this goes right back to you know another topic that we may touch upon later which is we can't get people to go in and do their routine cancer screenings and their breast cancer screenings and their hypertension screenings and their glaucoma screenings people don't want to be in a hospital setting where they might potentially contract covid-19 so you know, nudges are a, a um, nudges have been and are a tremendous opportunity for public health agencies and governments around the world in the midst of this pandemic to really be able to influence the behavior of individuals. Unfortunately, what we've seen, unfortunately, as I said, um, when you forbid options, when you close businesses, when you close schools, uh, when you shut down uh, an entire economy or an entire jurisdiction. Unfortunately, those aren't nudges. And I think that's where most of the people have gotten confused, even around what's happening with COVID-19 and the concept of nudging. When the government actually tells you that you can't travel, or when the government tells you that indoor dining is prohibited, or that your gym or hairdresser is closed, that's not a nudge.
0: It's not a nudge, but, but your implication seems to be, and it is necessarily a bad thing. Am I reading you right? Well, I'm no not in the
1: so so you're reading me right in the sense that that it is not a nudge. I, I am definitely saying that that I want listeners to understand those are not nudges. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think that for the you know for for in the context of of public health and the greater good and and, and you know the need to be able to um, not put strain on our limited healthcare resources, um, including you know the human resources. We only have so many doctors and, and nurses uh, who are who are beyond. Uh, fatigue and 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 who have put in a, you know monumental work over the last eighteen months to be to that extent, Stephen, I think nudges are um, uh, the government mandates are 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 a good thing. We need to be able to manage the flow of of uh, patients uh, so that we don't put undue strain uh, on our healthcare system.
0: So you uh, uh, led us toward talking a little bit about about screening. Um, folks may think about this as as the admonition that one should get an annual physical from their primary care physician should they be people who are lucky enough to actually have a primary care physician. Um, let's Let's complicate that a little bit because my read is that there's now some debate as to whether an actual annual physical is necessarily preferred for people who are not manifesting any symptoms. So let's talk a little bit about screening and false positives and false negatives and, and how to think in, in a more complicated way about the benefits and potential, uh, uh, uh downsides of screenings. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, so, so what I will say is at, at the very outset, um, you know, A couple of things that I think are important for listeners to understand about screening program. Screening programs are not diagnostic tests, as you know, and as most of the listeners know, but it's worth repeating that a screening test does not tell you whether you have a disease or an illness. All we're really trying to do is find out whether someone is likely to become sick before it is too late to start some meaningful treatment. Okay, And the other thing that's really important uh, uh, you know, about screening programs is that there is a really narrow window when screening programs make sense and when they're feasible. And so, you know, for example, uh, if you think about uh, the time between the biological onset of the disease has started, let's say breast cancer, and the detection of the disease by symptoms, let's say a lump in the breast, that's known as the detectable preclinical phase. In this stage, you know, when you're when you're thinking about screening programs, this is the stage, Stephen, when screening programs make the most sense. I mean, you you can't screen somebody after they've already detected the lump because at that point you're now in the phase of treating active disease, and you certainly can't screen somebody before the biological onset of. The breast cancer in my example, because there's nothing to screen. So there, there's a really narrow window. The other thing that's really important is that when we talk about screening, in the context of an annual wellness visit, annual physical or otherwise, um, you need to have a suitable disease for screening. And, and that sounds odd. It's like, well, what, what does Rohit mean? I need to have a suitable disease? Not all diseases are suitable for screening. You know, Using blood pressure to screen uh, for hypertension, a, a great a great example of a screening program where early detection, diagnosis, and treatment have favorable outcomes. Glaucoma is another one I mentioned. Breast cancer, but look, there there's some diseases, even like ovarian cancer and pancreatic cancer. It, it's not that we don't want to detect these diseases early. It's not that we're not desperate to intervene and, and try to you know reduce mortality. It's simply that these diseases are hardly fatal, and early detection before symptoms develop has little impact. On, on mortality. So um, I know you wanted to talk about false positives and, and false negatives and, and, and all that stuff. So I don't know if you have a specific question, Stephen, or you want me to kind of just kind of talk a little well, bit. About
0: well, actually, the- so, 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 so ignore the false positive, false negative prompt, and let's, let's hold on that. And if you can sort of sort of bring us back to where we started, which is talking about uh, the costs in the U S healthcare system. So how do we connect this to to the ways in which uh does does this cause us to spend more money? The ways in which we deal with screening in the U.S.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And and so uh, the the short answer is is yes and no. It can. Uh, it, in in all likelihood, we do spend more money with screening programs, not only because the screening program itself has to screen millions and millions of people, uh, but because of a very very nuanced uh, um, entity that that occurs within screening programs. And 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 this is where I'll, I'll kind of tie in, you know, uh, the, the false positive. For a moment in the false negative, when I when I go for a test and I screen uh, positively, you know, for the test and and let's just use an example and and this is an example that I I, I use in in the book I wrote, Misunderstanding Health: Making Sense of America's Broken Healthcare System. You know, uh, let's say that there is a test that could screen for a broken arm, and let's say that our screening test gives us a positive result. The test predicts that I have a broken arm, and I order an X-ray and it confirms. The result of the screening test. I indeed do have a broken arm. Well, that's great. In in the parlance of epidemiology, this is what we call a true positive. And on the flip side, if there is a test that predicts I do not have a broken arm and I order an X ray and indeed I do not have a broken arm, that's what we call a true negative. But that's where that's where the simplicity of of, of screening ends, Stephen. Now it starts to get complicated. What happens if what happens if I have a screening test that predicts um, I don't have a broken arm, and I really do. In, in this situation, that's a false positive. You know, what What happens in that situation? Uh, I, I see the doctor for follow-up visits. I might take time off work. I might get some, uh, you know, I, I might have some pain, some anxiety, um, you, you know, and I would incur a cost in the system. So, so screening programs, by their very nature, will incur a cost in the system because the screening program itself is is a heavy undertaking, but there's also hidden costs. I, I hope that makes a little bit of sense.
0: Absolutely. So So Rohit, we've, we've only touched upon a handful of the topics you cover in the book as we work our way toward concluding, uh, what, what else do you think that that is worth us talking a little bit about before before we let folks move on with their days?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, very much appreciate the time, Stephen. And and I think you know when I when I look at at some of the uh, implications of a broken healthcare system in 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 America or or, or anywhere, to be honest, uh, there's a couple of things that I really I really think about and. Number one, it's the role of artificial intelligence in in, in healthcare. How is that going to fundamentally change uh, diagnosis, detection, and 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 treatment of of diseases in the next ten or fifteen years? And there's a chapter on that in the book called "Ghost in the Machine," where we really talk about you know the the notion that artificial intelligence has some fundamental problems and it lacks some oversight. Um, and, and that's one of my favorite areas to talk about. Another area that I think is very important is, is this notion of um, you know, looking at uh, the role of influencers. So we talk about, um, you know, back in the day, uh, we used to have TV personalities who would pitch, you know, uh, Mary Lou Retton and Gre- and Bruce Jenner, who you know were Olympians, and they used to pitch all kinds of uh, Viox and Celebrex and, and and different medications. And we had movie stars and TV stars who would pitch these drugs. And I think as we enter this you know, the middle part of the 21st century over the next uh, you know, two decades. Uh, it's becoming incredibly, incredibly obvious that there is so much influence out there, Stephen, from both uh, celebrities and and non-celebrities that uh, seem to have greater influence on patients than the traditional doctor-patient relationship. And in some ways, that's a good thing. But in some ways, that's a very, very dangerous thing as well. And we need to keep our eye on it. We need to find a way to regulate how this influence, uh, happens and 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 uh, the implications it has on access to care seeking care or avoidance of care and so those two um those two uh, uh, topics are 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 ones that are 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 things that I think we should keep our eyes on
0: and on on that last point of course going back to what we were talking about earlier it's these this development of these extraordinary new uh, complicated and often what siloed networks of information sharing that have allowed uh, misinformation about vaccines to spread so effectively among certain populations and lock people into an information loop that shields them from the expertise that could help them make more informed, more research-based decisions about their own health care.
1: Yeah, I fully agree with you. I mean, I, and I think you know we've seen this um, not only in in you know the the current environment with SARS CoV two and, and the COVID nineteen pandemic, but but you know we've also seen this for uh, you know a number of years uh, uh, rear its rear its ugly head in, in other healthcare domains, and uh, we have known uh, that uh, you know there are a there are a large groups of, of individuals out there who are um, who are averse to uh, expert uh, opinion. They are averse to uh, scientific information and um, you know it's exacerbated obviously as, as we've said uh, with the speed and scale of, of social media.
0: We have been speaking with Rohit Khanna, who has been talking about his terrific new book, Misunderstanding Help, Making Sense of America's Broken Healthcare System, uh, new out from Johns Hopkins University Press. This is the New Book Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel. Rohit, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen.